Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Have you ever given a presentation and held your breath just before you revealed the dreaded slide that says questions? In today's episode, our focus will be just that, questions. Specifically, strategies for confidently approaching the Q&A segment within a meeting or presentation. I'm joined by Alex Velez, who's a data storyteller here at Storytelling with Data. She's the one who actually planned and facilitated the discussion you're about to hear. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Affleck. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hello and welcome. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Cole and I am joined today by Alex. Alex, I'm going to turn things right over to you. All right, let's do it. So I'm going to start by asking all of you to imagine yourself five, six, seven years ago, back when people were actually working in offices with others, myself included. All right, so this was well before my days here at Storytelling with Data. And I was working at a medium-sized organization. We had just hired a new VP, and this VP was going to be my direct manager. Now, in the beginning, it was just him and I. We were working on several different analytical projects. We'd get requests and look into them. And we get this one request that I remember vividly because it's actually a project that I had worked on years prior. So upon seeing the request, I start sharing all of the work that I had already done. My manager, right, he's fascinated, right? He starts asking me questions. We end up squatting in this empty conference room, bring up my data, the code on a big screen. I'm writing on the whiteboard. This spills over into lunch at Panera's. He's asking me questions. I'm happy to talk and start sharing all of the stuff that I know. Fast forward a couple of weeks. He shares all that he's learned from me with others, and it ends up leading to me being invited to the weekly leadership team meeting. If it's not evident at this point, this is a big deal, right? I've never been invited to this. Most people aren't. Now, I don't remember a lot of details about that meeting, but I do remember the way that I felt. I walked out of that meeting and I felt disappointed in things. Hours later, days later, right? I'm reviewing some of the questions that I was asked, revisiting how I could have answered things better. It's ironic when you think about it, because here I have these two scenarios, being asked about the work that I've done, I know it really well. Being asked by people that are more senior than me, but the outcome was totally different. My energy, my response towards these scenarios was completely different. And I think that's something that, that is quite common that happens to many of us. And again, it's silly because when we think about it, we're asked questions every single day. We're constantly fil fielding inquiries from one another. But there's something that happens when we start to formalize that process of Q&A that can make even the simplest question feels like an interrogation. And so that's going to be the topic here today. We're going to talk about all things Q&A, right? Why are people nervous about Q&A? How can we better prepare for Q&A sessions in a business presentation? What do we do when we do, in fact, face that tricky question? Now, I encourage those listening, certainly share your questions. I'll help to steer that conversation here today. Now, Cole, 
I've shared my thoughts on q and I'm curious, how do you feel towards Q&A? So Q&A is a funny thing and it has changed for me or how I feel about it has changed markedly over the years. When I think back you know, t- a decade ago when I was just starting to stand up in front of people and teach, questions made me nervous. The idea of questions made me nervous, right? Because at the onset, you don't know you don't know the, what the topic's going to be on or if someone's going to be an honorary member of the <laughs> audience. So I, I was lucky in that when I first started training other people, I was working at Google and actually went through a course on how to teach adult learners. But one sort of negative aspect of that is it made me really nervous about teaching adults because adults are actually, they, they're honorary and gnarly in all these different ways, right? We have much less patience in a learning environment than my five-year-old kindergartner, for example. And so it got me thinking about things that I hadn't even been thinking about ahead of that. It was a little bit nerve-wracking. And each time you get a question for the first time, there's a lot of processing and thinking that has to happen pretty quickly on your feet. You've got to find the words you need to be able to eloquently respond, make sure you understand what the person's really asking. And so that made me nervous at first. And the way, one way I would deal with that is just have so much content that there wasn't a lot of time for questions. <laughs> I knew my stuff. Pushed I could it out go of the and, presentation. Yes. Which sometimes works, not always. And when you think about it, that's a very, can be a very dissatisfying feeling for your audience because that's a big part of understanding something in a new way or learning something new is to be able to engage by asking questions. And so I would say over time, it's my comfort in front of a room built and my confidence increased increasingly questions have become one of my favorite parts of any session, whether it's a workshop in a room full of people or on stage at a keynote at a big conference. The questions are the point where, or one of the points where you get direct insight into somebody's world, right? What they're thinking, what challenges they face. And it's an opportunity to be able to help somebody potentially direct which is so exciting. And yeah, I, I love questions today. <laughs> I, I bet that you are one of the few that feels that way, but I, but I think more and more people are growing acceptance towards Q&A. And I think almost the recent events that we've had have led to that, right? The fact that we're presenting virtually these days. And so often Q&A is really the only feedback we get from our audience to see, did they understand what we're talking about? Is it relevant for their work? So I think that is something that has certainly made Q&A a little bit uh, less intimidating to me as I now see the value. Uh, But it's it's funny. It's a lens into someone, right? Because they're actually vocalizing. Because one of the things that is much harder in the virtual environment is just to be able to watch people, their facial expressions, their body language, because you get a lot of feedback from that when you're talking with someone or with a group of people. And that virtual ends up being a little bit blind to that. You might be able to see a little of it, right? If you can see a person smiling at you in their tiny box at the top of the screen as you're saying something, that's reinforcing. But beyond that, we don't really get much, except for when people are actually verbalizing how they're feeling. And so that does often come through the form of questions. 
So just based on what you've said, we've talked about the importance with virtual. Would you say that every presentation has to have Q&A? Would you go that far? For me, I, I tend to shy away from anything that says you must always do this or you should never do that. It's always situationally dependent. So I think when you're considering, should I have dedicated time for Q&A or should I leave space for questions in whatever I'm presenting or communicating, think about the situation and the different pieces of that puzzle. Who are you talking to? What's the setup? Is it virtual land? Are you there in person? What do you need to have happen? What does success look like? And then figure out, does that mean questions are going to help that encounter or that thing be more successful? And there may be cases, you definitely want to think about your audience critically as they play into that as well, because there may very well be times where you as the communicator don't feel there's a need for questions, but that your audience is going to demand it. And so you want to be prepared for that and allow space for that. Sure. And so I want to jump right in and just get to the tough questions. I think you brought it up. One of the biggest fears is this idea that you're going to get a question that you don't know how to answer. So have you experienced that? Have you ever gotten a question that you don't know the answer to? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone has. I think if we reflect enough of either maybe it's something you knew and you just couldn't remember the number or the fact at that moment in time, or I think of if you're explaining an analysis or the results of your study to an audience, someone may have questions about an aspect of it that you actually didn't look into. And so always when when the stakes are high, right, when it's an important thing that you are communicating, I always encourage people to try to anticipate questions ahead of time and be ready to address the ones that are likely to come up. And it's really helpful to do this with a partner or with other people so that you can get the perspective of someone who lives outside of your head. Because anytime you're presenting on a topic, and, and I should mention also when we say presenting, we're using that really all encompassing here, where maybe you're standing on a stage giving a keynote, maybe it's a weekly team meeting and you're just giving an update on something. What we're talking about here will apply to all of those scenarios, those each and then in between as well. There is almost always utility in grabbing a partner or some colleagues or friends and talking them through high level what you're going to be communicating and ask them to ask you questions. Practicing is a way both to help enforce you to articulate responses in real time, which can then make it smoother, <laughs> a smoother process when you get to the point of needing to do that for real. Also, even in the case where the question doesn't come up in the real event, Knowing that you've practiced for it can just help ease nerves, help us be more confident in everything we present. And so in particular, if you can anticipate that your audience is very different from you, or if they may have biases that make them resistant to what you want to communicate, have colleagues play devil's advocate and just have them be aggressive in their question asking. Because usually they're going to be harsher than what you'll encounter in real life. And it just it helps us practice. 
Yeah, so I love this, right? Themes are emerging, right? Preparation is key, anticipating those questions. That's also helpful to do beforehand because it can also help you identify, do you have any sort of gaps in your logic anyway? So it can make for a stronger argument there. But in my experience, even the best preparation, you can still get a question that you don't know how to answer. So what do you do in the moment there? Yeah, great. I didn't actually answer that question the last time. So thanks for bringing me back to it. it, You can take different strategies. And this comes back to the situation as well. So you can imagine if this is an ongoing project and it's more kind of a status update, then you should be looking for questions that you don't have the answer to because that can help direct where you go in the future, right? And help make it more robust. If, on the other hand, you've already done everything and you're at the end point, with a recommendation or a finding and a question comes up that you don't know the answer to, one approach is to just recognize that. That's an awesome question. We actually didn't look into that. And so if it's something that warrants attention, we will look into that and get back to you. Or if it's a question that you know you can find the answer to, you just don't have it in your notes or on the tip of your tongue, you can say, yes, we have that. I don't have that information with me in the moment, but I'm going to follow up with it as soon as I get back to my desk, whatever the scenario is. Now, there are some cases, though, where that won't fly, right? If you're you should know your stuff and you're presenting to senior leadership and they ask you a question that you should know the answer to and you don't, that can get into sort of scary land. And so in those cases, anytime you can have an advocate or like a helpful supporter in that room or in that meeting, they can sometimes help provide air cover in those cases where instead of you having to baffle your way through, oh, I don't know, we'll look into that, I'll follow up and potentially lose credibility as a result of that, having someone else there to be able to jump in to say, it's a great question. I actually don't want to get us off track with that. Let's keep going. We'll follow up with it. And so it depends a lot on who you're communicating to and your relationship relative to that person or your standing relative to that person. And I'm always an advocate of, and particularly in, I said this before, but in high stakes scenarios, right? Where you're communicating about something really important or you're communicating to somebody really important. You want to anticipate how things could go off the rails, right? How could things go wrong? And what can I do if that comes to fruition? And just the process of planning for it usually means that it doesn't play out in that way. But again, as you plan for these scenarios, then when they do arise, you're able to more eloquently deal with them. Yeah. And so I think I heard you throw out a number of strategies. I like the one where it's just you're buying yourself time. That's one of the hardest parts of Q&A is that you have to answer something in the moment on your feet right then and there. And so ways to buy yourself time, you shared some, right? Follow up later on, which sort of implies this idea that maybe there isn't one way to handle a difficult question, but maybe one way not to, right? This idea of just don't guess and throw out or any yes, sort of answer that's a there. good point. Yeah. Don't make things up. That will only hurt you. Another strategy you can use along the idea of buying yourself time, and this can work both if it's a case where you're not sure of the answer, or if you just need a little bit more time to pull your thoughts together, 
and, and need somebody else speaking while that happens, turning it back to the other people in the room can sometimes be a strategy that works really well. So in a workshop setting, for example, and we'll do this even when we have our own perspectives or opinions on things because it can help start more productive conversations and help get people engaged of, you know, hey, that's a great question. Actually, before I tell you what I think on that topic, let's hear from folks in the room. Has anyone encountered this scenario before? Does anyone have an interesting solution that they've used in this space? Does anyone have an opinion on this topic or question that just came up? And so again, situationally dependent on when and whether that will work. And that's about being really aware in the moment of reading the room or the, the virtual room of are people engaged, right? Because if you do that in a room where everybody's checked out for one reason or another, that's going to backfire. Or if you do it in a case where, no, they've asked you something specific uh, to your subject matter expertise and you are the one who's meant to respond, then that's probably not the place to do it. But if it's a place where you want to get people involved and engaged and where there's going to be benefit in hearing multiple perspectives, that can be a fantastic way to do so. And it just takes it from being this, I'm presenting to you, to a conversation that we're having together, which can be a nice shift in feelings too. Yeah, I think that shift in perspective is absolutely critical. And if I think back to the scenario that I described at the start of this, that was the biggest difference. My mindset was intimidated when I got to the meeting. But if you got me in a more casual setting, I could freely form answers about my work. And so I think the more that you can calm yourself down and have an open-minded perspective, the more you're going to be able to think through how do you actually address this situation, that sort of awareness that you talked about. And speaking of awareness, right, I can think of maybe a year ago, I don't know if you remember this call, but we were all teaching a public workshop and we got a question that was, what are your thoughts on sand charts? And every single one of us went, what's a sand chart? We didn't know the answer. I just did that in my head just now. (laughs) Exactly. This happens to the best of us. And I think sometimes the reason that we don't know the answer to the question is more so We're just on a different page with the person asking the question because we all did a very quick Google search. And when you type in sand chart, and I encourage those listening to certainly do that, you actually get a picture of a stacked area chart, right? So you can think of the 90s sand art that's happening. And as soon as we did that, we had the same reaction that you just had, Cole. We knew what somebody was asking. And so I think that leads into this other idea that sometimes the question being asked isn't really clear to the person who's going to answer that. So I think another strategy is to get clarification, right? Absolutely. To ask questions back to the question asker, because for sure they understand what they're asking. And I think being, so allowing a little bit of patience to fully listen and be be fully present when you are addressing questions. I I have run into this as an issue before, and I've actually gotten feedback on this before, that I get so excited about the Q&A part that someone starts a question and I have a tendency, if I think I know where they're going with that question, that rather than to let them finish, I jump in and start with my response, which is a bad thing to do, right? Because sometimes that means I might end up asking a question or answering a question that is different from the one they were going to ask. So you want to let people finish their 
thought and make sure that you understand what they're asking. And even if you think you do, coming back with a clarifying question or one of those sort of I statements, right? I, I think what I'm hearing is and stating it back to them. This can both buy you time if you need to do a little bit of thought gathering of how you're going to address it, but then also will help make sure that you really understand the question that is being asked. Yeah. So you want to buy time, listen till the end, maybe take a breath or two to make sure you understand if you don't ask that question back. Another tip that I've heard you do actually, and I think all of us on the storytelling with data team have now incorporated two phrases. We'll just say these two words when somebody asks us a question, say more right? Say more about that. And just you get them talking and talking. And the more details they give you, the more clarification you have into how you can best really answer that. Sometimes I'll even- Say more is a fantastic one if you're so confused by the question that you're not (laughs) even sure what to glob onto to try to put back at someone. Or if you need more time to gather your thoughts, or if you're wanting to make sure you understood the question correctly, because it it usually causes people to either rephrase what they just asked or, and this is great when this happens, maybe they asked a general question first, bring up a specific example that means now your response can be more targeted and more tailored. Yeah, that's a great strategy. Do you need a break from your webcam, Zoom calls, and home office? Do you miss connecting and interacting with others while learning new skills? If so, why not consider joining Cole and the entire Storytelling with Data team for our first in-person workshop in nearly two years on October 21st in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We've planned a full day of interactive, hands-on learning that will leave you energized and with an understanding of new strategies for effective data storytelling. Check out storytellingwithdata.com workshops for more information. And for podcast listeners, enter the code PODCAST10 at checkout for 10% off your registration. That's PODCAST10 for 10% off your registration. We can't wait to see you in Milwaukee. And I love that all of these strategies, when you really break them down, they're they're not difficult, right? They're things that we would do in a normal conversation. But for some reason, when the pressure is on, it all goes out the window. We forget how to respond or have these engaging conversations and that it is this two-way street there. Absolutely. So I was going to bring this up. Another thing that I can sometimes trip folks up is when you get a question that is completely off topic, right? You've just presented, you're in the moment, you know exactly what you're trying to get your audience to do. And somebody brings up this tangential point that could throw everything off. What do you do there? And actually, I we get this question a lot in our workshops, right? And Cole, I've heard you answer this. I've heard everyone on the team. So for those listening, we do workshops on explanatory communications. And without a doubt, nearly every single workshop, somebody will raise their hand, they'll message in the chat window, and they'll ask, well, what about dashboards? And this is a tricky question to actually maneuver. So what would you? what's your response to that? And then we'll see if we can break it down there tricky because we focus on a a different sort of space when it comes to communicating data. I want to come back to your meta question and and then we can address the dashboard one specifically. So I think when you are presenting to an audience on any topic and you get a question that feels like it's out of left field, the first thing you want to figure out is, do you need to go there, right? Are you going to respond to it? 
And I think whether you do depends on a couple of things. It depends on who that person is, right? If it's your CEO, you probably can't say, no, sorry, we're not going to go there right now. Versus if it's a peer, maybe you have more leeway to be able to get away with that. I think it depends on your time constraints, right? If you have a lot of time and patience on the part of the people who you're talking with, then you can get away with going down some of these tangents. You just want to be careful and be monitoring people to try to figure out if that's becoming distracting or annoying. And this, again, is when you can see body language, you can see some of those pieces. Or in virtual land, you can find other ways to check in, right? You can have people, you know, hey, do others have this question? Quick show of hands. Oh, actually, so nobody else does. Let's put that on hold for now. If we have time at the end, we'll come back to it. It could be one way to do that. Or if it's if you decide, no, I, I'm not going to address this because I don't have time or I'm afraid it's going to take us off track, or I was about to build up to this other big point, and that's going to take away from the planned path that I want to go through in my presentation, then you want to figure out how do you communicate that and what do you communicate? Is it, if we have time, we'll come back later? Or another thing is, that's a great question. It's actually not central to what we're focusing on here today. So why don't you catch me after the meeting or afterwards, and we can go into that, or and you can figure out, right, other ways to fill in that piece. If you decide you do answer the question, then you want to figure out how far to go, when to come back, how to transition back into the other stuff. One way that I sometimes deal with this, and Alex, just coming back to the dashboard question example, maybe I do this there, but there are some cases where if someone asks a question that I don't care to answer, for whatever reason, right? Might, might be a little off topic or something else. I'll turn it into the question that I want to answer. And so <laughs> this is one of those cases where you have to be careful about when you do this. And so oftentimes uh, when I do podcasts with other people where they're interviewing me, they will almost always ahead of time ask, are there any questions you're not comfortable with or any topics you don't want to go into? And my response is always, no, I'm fine. I can talk about anything. And I actually have no problem turning a question I don't want to answer into one that I do. So ask, ask away and we'll do that. And there are ways you can do that without making the person asking the question <laughs> feel bad. That's a fantastic question. And actually one that's really similar to this that we get a lot, right? So just this slight redirect now means I can take it into the space that's going to now help me transition into where I was going next. Or if it was maybe a confusing question, I can clarify and again, turn that into something that is clear to be able to answer. I see Amanda commenting. I like that. Turn it into a question you want to ask. And so just coming back to the dashboard one, and just to give a little more context, Alex did a little bit of this, but when we're focusing on explanatory communications, dashboards, it, it's a different use case where you're using it to monitor, you're using it to find the interesting stories. And so I'll usually, I'll, this is one that I, I answer. I guess I don't turn it into another question, but of backing up to set some context uh, because oftentimes we will have already talked about exploratory analysis or exploring data versus explanatory explaining data. So that allows me to draw back on something that we've already talked about that then reinforces that distinction. And I'll usually give a couple of strategies for dealing with dashboards in this instance and then redirect us 
back to the topic at hand. And so there are no hard and fast rules when it comes to this. You can hear all the different strategies that we're talking through, but it's really about being present in the moment, being aware of what the person's intent is as much as you can when they're asking questions. Because I think sometimes we assume that people are asking us questions just to throw us off our game. And, and sometimes that is the case, right? You have a gnarly audience member who just has decided for whatever reason that they're against you and, and what you want to say, and they're going to make that clear. And so there are different ways you can deal with that, uh, which we can get into more if we have time. But rather than that, I'll redirect back to our topic at hand. Because you answer your own questions. I love this. But I think more often, I try not to assume malintent on the person who's asking the question, even if it comes off as questioning in the bad sense of the way of they're trying to throw you off, they're trying to trick you, they're trying to, I don't know, get at something. Because I think more often, it's just someone who really is wondering something and maybe doesn't articulate it in a way that sounds that altruistic, if that makes sense. And so figuring out how to address some of those things. Actually, though, I'll share a quick anecdote on the gnarly audience member example. I've worked over a few years with a medical device company who would employ physicians. They were actually neurosurgeons to speak on behalf of one of their products. And I would a few times a year come in and train these neurosurgeons on how to talk about data. And because they'd be doing so as they're talking to their peers, as they're talking to their patients and such. And I remember one day we were in Texas, right? And Texas, I used to live there. Texas is a place where people are usually very polite. One guy sits in the front seat and his body posture was such that if there had been a table for him to put his feet up on so he could lean back even further, he totally would have done that. Where it was just this air about him. As I got up to the front of the room and I was about to start speaking, right? So this is before I even get a chance to introduce myself, he looks me up and down and says, what am I going to learn from you? So Ouch. there's an interesting question, right? <laughs> and I think even when we try to not assume malintent there, you know, I don't, was he testing me? Who knows? Had I faced that scenario earlier in my career, I'm nervous <laughs> about how I would have responded. But this was more recently and I have become a fairly confident person. So I said, well, guess you better tune in and I'll show you. For me, that's one of the things that has become increasingly fun over time as well. It's new questions, getting to read the room, but it's also encountering people that maybe aren't on board at first and getting to see a transformation take shape. And it did, right? By the end of it, he actually apologized <laughs> to me and nice. was, yeah, it was a participative part of the conversation and everything. So it's super fun to watch those changes. That doesn't always happen <laughs> with an early audience member, but when we can take steps to change people's perspective through how we're communicating with them, it's a really rewarding thing. 
Yeah, I think key there that you just outlined is to break the tension, right? When you get a hostile question, if you can redirect the energy, and that's going to help everybody else in the audience. So I know for me, I probably would have approached that more with a little bit of humor, right? That might have been a place where I would insert a joke. And it's going to depend on everyone. But I think the key there is uh, to take that question. You heard it. You've acknowledged it. Throw it back to something a little bit more positive and keep that energy and that confidence for the rest of your presentation so you don't get derailed there. Absolutely. And I think humor can always work well to redirect. Personally, I'm not very funny, so I don't re- <laughs> I don't rely on that. If I tell a joke, I've told it many times before and I, I know it works, right otherwise <laughs> I don't go there. Yeah. But that can be another case as well, that if the sentiment of one gnarly audience member feels like it's very different from others in the room, that could be a great spot to do one of the strategies that we talked about before of turn it back over to the room to say, I don't know, folks, what do you think? Do you think I'm going to be able to teach you anything today? Now, you don't want to do that if everybody in the audience is skeptical, right? Because then you're going to walk right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. Good stuff. So we've talked about strategies for what do you do when you get a question you don't know? It's off topic. You've put your best foot forward. You've answered a question. It didn't come out as smooth as you would have hoped. Is that the end of the world? Right? Is this fear really warranted? Rarely can you not come back from a misstep. Sometimes the stakes are so high, but I think if that's the case, then you've got hopefully somebody else in the room who can help counter that or help provide some air cover there. But I think in the case where afterwards you are feeling bad about the way you addressed a question for whatever reason, right? It wasn't as eloquent as you meant it to be. You thought maybe you were more confusing in your response or that didn't answer the question. Think about whether you can follow up with that person individually to say, I thought about this more and actually now here's a more robust response or whatever the situation warrants or sit down with that person. It really depends, but there are always ways that you can, you know, if you take a misstep that you can take other steps to rectify that. And I think whether to go down that path, that's a great spot to chat with your manager or chat with a colleague to say, I'm feeling this way. I want to reach out to this person. What do you think? Because another perspective can help bring you out of the moment and the feelings and evaluate that logically to figure out if that's going to help or potentially hinder you. But I, I think most often that would be helpful. And people are not going to be angry typically if you follow back up with them uh, with more information or with a better articulated response than what you're able to do live. I like that. So related to that question, right? I'm thinking of this on a broad scale, but how do you know if you've answered a question well? What makes an answer good? Best is to ask the person who asked the question. Did I, does that answer your question? Is Does that help? Does that make you have any follow-up questions? When you can check back in with the person, that can be a strategy to know. Or this is another time where you can turn it back over to the audience. What do others think? Because oftentimes then if someone has a similar experience, they may chime in with that and it helps reinforce the response or the idea. Yeah. So if you're unsure, look for ways to get that feedback. Or if not in the moment, then after the meeting or after the presentation, grab a friend or a colleague who was there and ask them. Because if we're in the moment, and particularly if we're nervous, it becomes difficult 
in your memory now to have sort of an accurate recount of what took place, where we tend to color things pretty quickly with our own perspectives. And so just getting input from someone else who is there, who may have a completely different read on how it went, can be useful. Nice. All right. I want to shift gears here. We've covered so many strategies at this point, but I want to talk about more of the logistics towards Q&A. I've already asked you, should you always include a Q&A? You said it depends. We want to get away from that black and white sort of viewpoint there. But if you are going to include a Q&A, right, you've decided it's warranted for your presentation, makes sense for your audience. Where do you put that? Do you put that at the end? Do you sprinkle it throughout? Is there a right or wrong way? No, uh, there's not a right or wrong way. And I think this comes back to reflecting on this idea of what does success look like? Can you anticipate, given either who you know is in the room or given the profile of your audience members, that they're going to be chomping at the bit to get questions answered sooner? If what you're going through is information that they need for folks to be on level playing ground or have the right sort of context, then it probably makes sense to do that first before you invite questions. And actually, one strategy you can employ in that case is to let people know that's what you're going to do. All right. Today, folks, I'm going to take you through blah. I know you'll have questions, but I actually want to get us through all of the context first so we're on the same page. And some of your questions will probably get answered as I go through that. Give me five minutes up front, and then we can shift over and start incorporating your questions. Or using questions can be one way to understand your audience better if you don't have the ability to do this ahead of time or if you anticipate there are a couple different avenues that you might go down or things your audience might care about. Sometimes it can make sense to take in that information in the moment and get the read on your audience by starting off by saying, all right, today here's the topic at hand. Before I start going, I want to know what questions do you have? Because then that can help you know, even if your materials that you go through don't change at all, it can help you understand how to frame things in a way that's going to work for your audience and that's going to help answer the questions that they have on their mind and can help you from going down a path that might run completely counter to where they want to be or what they want to know or do, uh, which can be useful to know upfront not when you get to the end. When we do things, we typically have different spots for questions throughout, right? So in a virtual setting like this, one of the cool things is people can be asking questions the whole time and it doesn't derail things because they're sitting there in the chat window. We can pull them in as the time makes sense or as it makes sense topically to what we're covering. We can hold ones that maybe aren't as relevant until we get to one of those designated Q&A sessions that's a little more broad versus in real time or in person, that's harder because if somebody asks the question, you have to vocalize some sort of response in the moment. Uh, so virtual has some positives, I think, when it comes to some of this. But we'll typically invite questions throughout and then have some set points where we're going to respond to questions. And always, if you can give people warning that that's coming, then as they have questions, they may jot them down or can reflect more on that versus just pivoting there in a moment and assuming that people are going to have things top of mind. So a little bit of warning that you're going to be doing that can be helpful too. 
Yeah. So I like what you've talked about with this framing, right? Telling people what to expect with Q&A. And that leads me into a situation that I actually think is worse than getting one of those gnarly hostile questions, which is when you get to Q&A and there aren't any questions. That can feel terrible as a presenter. Yeah, this feels bad because it feels like people aren't engaged, uh, which isn't always the case. Sometimes that's the case. (laughs) But another reason I think that happens is particularly when you're dealing with content that might be dense or might be new, somebody's experiencing it for the first time, there's processing that has to happen. And so I think sometimes when we switch to questions, that processing is still happening. And so people aren't yet ready maybe to articulate their questions. And if you're in virtual land, so we work with some technologies where questions are delayed, where I might say, all right, we're going to take questions. And then now you start typing in your chat window and you have a question for me that may not get to a point where I can see it until 30 seconds later or a minute later. And so in both of these scenarios, one way to address it is to start off by saying, well, I'll kick us off. One question we commonly get is, or at this juncture, you may be wondering, and I can seed my own questions. Or this is a case where if you had a question that came up earlier that was off topic or that you didn't want to address in the moment, now you can go back to it. Or in virtual land, this is where you can be scanning that chat window to see what came up that might make sense to kick things off with. And this just gives everybody a little bit of time to be able to form their questions so that they're ready to verbalize it. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually just related to one of the toxic topics that you've just brought up. We got a question, how do we make sure we're preparing to present content that our audience is going to want? And I think one of the strategies that you shared up first, right, kicking off your presentations with some questions can certainly give you that lens there. Yeah, I think that's one way. And really just thinking about when we're communicating that we're not doing it first and foremost for ourselves. When we're communicating, we're doing it first and foremost for somebody else, right? for our audience. And when you can make that paradigm shift and really be thoughtful about who your audience is and what they care about, then it causes you to frame things in a different way, where now it's not being framed as, I did this cool thing, I'm interested in it, therefore you should be interested in it, which is not so compelling. Instead, it's, here's why you should be interested in this thing, right? Here's why it matters to you. Here's how you're going to be able to make use of it or how it's going to make your life easier in different ways, right? Whatever that thing is that you can get at when it comes to factors that motivate your audience, that the thing you're communicating will help address in positive ways. And so I always come back to audience and how we can make things work for them. And if we don't know, then we want to talk to them or talk to people like them or talk to other people who have communicated successfully or not with that group. And the more insight we can get, the more we can design everything we do when it comes to explanatory communication with that audience in mind, the better equipped we'll be to meet their needs and have what we're talking about be something that they're intrinsically interested in. So coming back to this idea of where you put Q&A, I'm also just curious about this idea of how much time would you allocate for Q&A? Is there sort of a right ratio? Does it depend on if it's over an hour, if it's 15 minutes that you have? 
It depends, right? <laughs> uh, which is the answer to pretty much every question in this. How would you space. approach it? So if you've got yeah, an hour I think to talk. So it, it, de- it depends. If it's an hour to talk in a room with a handful of people, well, maybe it doesn't make so much difference there. I was going to counter that with versus it's a keynote presentation and you're standing on stage. I don't know. I maybe come at this from the wrong or a different perspective. As I shared, I really like the question segment uh, because for me, that's one of the pieces that's different each time. There's some uncertainty uh, and there's something about responding to something in the moment that's different from the presentation that I've practiced. It it draws on a different sort of energy, I think, in a way that I've come to really appreciate over time. And so I allow probably more time for questions, or my tendency is to want to spend more time on questions than one might typically. So if it's an hour keynote presentation, say, for sure at least 15 minutes of that I would want to leave for questions. And a lot of times, if it's a conference sort of situation, you'll get input uh, or constraints from the organizers to say, you need to talk for 45 minutes and if it's 15 minutes Q&A. Or I'm always a little sad when it's, you're going to talk for 55 minutes and five minutes Q&A because it's such a short uh, span of time for questions. And I know people typically have more they want to talk about after a session than that. Or if I think about our workshops, it's our most common is the half day workshop, where within that we'll have usually, we'll have a few different discussion points and questions always come up within those. But then we'll typically have two dedicated chunks of time for questions, usually about midway through and then again closer to the end of the session. But then something that you also get is we have breaks. And so in person, anytime a a break happens, you'll now have individuals coming up and asking questions. This happens in virtual space as well, where this now people can have time to turn their attention to chat and maybe put some questions there. We've talked a lot about the comfort level of the person answering the question. There's also varying levels of comfort for people when it comes to asking questions. And so that's something to think about as well, whether you want to invite questions from a broader uh, group and get more perspective and then you want to allow there to be space for people to ask questions in different ways. So some of that might be in front of the full group. Maybe there are other times where you're available one-on-one for individuals to approach you. And so if that's the case, you want to think about if it's an actual in-person meeting, show up to the room 10 minutes early and chit-chat with people as they come in. That can be one opportunity for that. Block your schedule so you can stay afterwards. And that's a way that you can get immediate feedback sometimes as well on what you've done by grab someone who was there and and chat with them about how it was or what questions they have. And then in virtual land, you can do that as well. Just have to um, think about how to best facilitate that. I'm laughing because I'm reading through the chat and somebody has said, it feels like the answer to every question is, it depends. And I think it's true because when it comes to the space of presenting, answering questions, there's really is more of an art than a science. There's so many different factors that come into it. Yeah. And I think for folks wondering what it depends on, because while the answer is it depends, there, there are a limited number of things oftentimes that it depends on. And we actually have a podcast that we've done in the past that is called It Depends. I don't remember offhand which episode number it was, but if you go to storytellingwithdata.com slash podcast and just do a search for that term, you'll find it and we'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, because there are common things that it depends 
on. And actually, here's another strategy for answering a question, which is because I just stop myself from going into the aspects of things it depends on, because instead I can refer you to this other resource that's going to answer that question. So that can be another strategy to lean on if you've got something robust out there that you can refer people to instead of having to go through a complete answer in the moment. That can sometimes work as well. Yeah, it comes back to just recognizing why your audience is asking a question in the first place, right? They want to learn more. They want to understand what you're talking to. And so sometimes you don't have to have the perfect answer. Sometimes it's really just directing somebody to another resource so that they can learn more. And that should be another strategy that you have in your back pocket when you face some of these difficult questions. So Cole, just coming towards the end here, I'm curious, do you have any last minute words, wisdom for folks? You have so much Q&A experience. Anyone who's feeling nervous, what should they take away from today? I mean, practicing. If you have nerves when it comes to this piece, recognize that and be okay with it and understand that there are ways that you can actively work past that. And so we talked about grabbing a colleague ahead of time and anticipating questions, practicing your response to questions so that you feel comfortable and confident in the moment. I think just also, and particularly if you find that this is an uncomfortable space, put yourself in situations where you have to flex that muscle and try to find low stakes ways to do it first. If instead of jumping into volunteering for a meeting with your senior leadership, maybe you present something to your colleagues first and take their questions. And I think the more you can do to just be thoughtful in how you respond to someone in the moment and you know, make use of some of the strategies that we've talked about here and look at questions as a way to gather information from your audience, to help share more information with them. And I hope with practice that people will have the same sort of transformation over time that I have, where if you start out dreading the Q&A portion of a meeting or a presentation, that you come to love it because there's so much value to be gained in the exchange that happens after someone asks a really good question. And speaking of the value to be gained, we're starting to see a ton of different questions coming in via the chat window. We're also broadcasting live on YouTube. So we're going to switch gears a little bit rather than just focusing on the strategy of Q&A. Encourage folks if they have any sorts of questions related to the topic on hand today or anything that we cover here at Storytelling with Data, certainly do ask us. Cole, One of the questions that we've received relates to presenting data, but what's the best approach to pitch data visualization to senior management, right? New, getting into the field. Do you have any tips and tricks that worked for you early on? I think the best way to get people to understand the value of spending time visualizing data is to show them that value. And so that means, or one form that can take is looking for ways in your regular work to integrate pieces of it. Where historically have you communicated where it's just words or it's just email or it's just a table where you try using a graph instead? And these small steps build over time. Because if now in showing something through a graph instead of maybe the table or the words that were there before, and maybe it's not instead of, maybe it's in addition to, particularly if you uh, fear that people may reject change, then 
when people can see now that they can understand something in a different way as a result of that, you'll find that you don't have to pitch, that people will start asking for it. And that is the scenario you want to try to get into because I feel like anytime you're trying to prove the value, that's a hard conversation, right? Because that can get very quickly into ROI, why, right? If I, if I buy this fancy tool for a company, what's my return going to be? And that's a really hard question to answer because it's hard to say, well, we visualize data in this way and now sales are greater as a result. There's so many other things that happen in between. So they start by looking for small ways that you can model what best practices look like and try to build momentum there. Uh, another strategy can be to get someone who is influential on board and have them help be an advocate. So I think part of what it is useful to convince people of is that visualizing data, communicating with data, these aren't skills that are innate, right? These are not skills that we just naturally have and are good at, that there's value in having folks who spend time thinking about these things and learning about best practices and understanding why some things work better than others. Uh, but to get funding, you, you've got to be able to show that. And so look for scrappy ways to start out where you don't have to make big investments, right? Because it doesn't take fancy tools to do this stuff well. It takes being thoughtful about how you show your data and what stories or what framing you put around it to make it work in the given situation. So that's me talking a lot, but I would come back to saying, lead by example, start integrating it in small ways and see what resonates with people and also learn what doesn't so that you can maneuver in ways that is likely to be accepted and that momentum will build over time in positive ways. Yeah, And, and I wish you luck. It's a journey. <laughs> Yeah, definitely good luck. And I also recommend just building on Cole's answer there. Consider your use of words and color. All right, this is a tip we throw out in nearly every training that we do, and we can certainly link to it. But we have a blog post with an example of the power of using color sparingly, using words well. And this could be one of those baby steps that Cole mentioned that you start to implement and you really do start to see the value uh, of your work there. Now we have another question. I think this is going to be a new question for you, Cole. Uh, awesome. Are there outdated ways of communicating with your data that you've seen? And do you have any examples there? So I think one thing I see that I see less, I think, than maybe a decade ago, maybe even five years ago, but still more than I wish to, is the data dump where it's just a bunch of graphs, a bunch of data. That's not how we want to communicate. <laughs> we have a lot of lessons that are thoughtful about employing words and having a point, right? Anytime you show a graph, you should be able to articulate why you are showing that graph. And just coming back to what Alex said moments ago on using color and words strategically, right? If you have a point you want to make with the data that you show, which you should have if we're talking about an explanatory communication, then use color sparingly to draw attention to where you want people to look and use words around that to tell them why you are looking there. So I think anytime you see yourself or your colleagues just showing graphs, just pause and reflect on 
is that enough? Because usually it isn't. Uh, And also it limits the value that we can add. Actually, this is great sort of building back on that other question about proving the value of data viz, that graphs for the sake of graphs are not going to be compelling. What's compelling is when you understand that data, you turn it into a graph and now you use that graph to help other people understand that data in new ways. And for you, that happens when you look at the graph, right? Because you know the context, you understand the graph, you understand where to look and what to see because you've been working with it for so long. That's not the case for anyone else, though, looking at that graph. That's where we have to take explicit steps to help others see the same thing that we want them to see and walk away with the same conclusion or takeaway that we want them to know. I think that's what I would like to see less of if we think of outdated data viz, is just the data dump when it shouldn't be a data dump, which is most of the time. I think we'd all like to see less of that call. Final question here today. So we can tie this back to Q&A, of course, but I want to even think beyond just engaging with your audience in questions and answers. So the question is, how do you make sure that when you're presenting, your audience is interested in what it is you're saying, right? You don't want to get to the scenario where you're done your presentation and everyone's just dead silent. How can you avoid that? Check in with them. And you can think about when along the grander process you might do that. We've talked about in in the session, in the moment, questions can be one way to get at some of that. But even better than that is to talk with someone in your audience or who knows your audience really well before you even get to the point of presenting to them so that you have some of this insight and can weave it into how you're presenting. My view is if we've done our homework, if we know what we're communicating, we know our message, we know our audience, then that can't fail. Because it means that we've taken our audience's needs into account and made what we're communicating resonate with them. And now this doesn't mean we always get the outcome we're after, but it means we're able to help our audience understand things in the way that we want them to. We're able to drive better discussions, more informed discussions. And at the end of all that, you may do everything right. And your audience may still disagree, and that's okay, particularly as we talk about data-driven decision-making. Data is one input. There are other reasons to make decisions as well. And sometimes other people have more of that context, or they'll just be in a position where they say, okay, the data says that, but we're going to do this other thing. And that's totally fine. You just want to do that with the knowledge of what we know from the data, not in absence of it. And so, you know, I've talked about audience several times during our sessions today, but I really think that the more we can do things for them, the better this all goes. And it answers a lot of the questions that come up in this space, because I think one way that we can answer all of the questions that we've seen so far is just to say, what's going to work for my audience? And if we can figure that out, we don't always know. So we try and we learn each time. And I think that's another great meta lesson that I'll just focus on here for a moment is every time we do any of this, whether it's answering questions in a Q&A situation, whether it's trying to show the value of data viz and graphing something 
for the first time or in a new way or in a new space or working with our audience and trying to come up with something that's going to keep their interest and motivate them to do something versus silence and no questions or interaction at the end of the presentation. That as we're thoughtful about how we do this and as we try out different things, you always want to be learning from that process of what worked well, what didn't work so well. And again, both from your perspective as well as if, if you can from others who are witnessing it because that can be helpful. And try things and learn from each experience and put yourself in situations where you can try new things and get new learnings. Uh, because even when we fail, failure is too strong of a word here, even when things don't go quite as expected, maybe especially when things don't go quite as expected, there is such learning that can come from that when we're reflective about it and we recognize it and we think about, okay, if that's what happened this time, next time, here's what I'm going to do. And yeah, we can all keep getting increasingly nuanced in how we communicate with data and all aspects of it. We just have to be thoughtful about how we continue to hone our own skills and attempts as it comes to all of that. That was a beautiful point, inspiring for everyone there. But yeah, learning from your experiences, your mistakes, right? That's what's going to take you to that next level. If everything goes perfect every single time, then there's nothing to do different. You're not going to learn. You're not going to experiment there. And I think if I can take any takeaways from today about Q&A, about our Q&A towards the very end, it's right. It's really about perspective and it's really about preparation, Right? When it comes down to those two things, we can set ourselves up for success when it comes to building a graph, when it comes to answering questions or presenting our work. So I want to give everyone a big thank you for tuning in, sharing your questions with us. If you want to learn more, you can certainly check out our website at storytellingwithdata.com. If you want to revisit any of the resources that we've talked about today or talk about some of the strategies uh, that we've touched on, certainly check out this podcast episode again and the related show notes. And you can find that at storytellingwithdata.com slash podcasts. So big thank you to everyone. Big thank you to Cole. And big thank you to Alex. This was her topic idea, and she's the full organizer of everything that we just went through. So it was a super fun chat. So thank you, Alex. And big thanks to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time.